Today is April the 20th, 2022. They say that April showers bring May flowers. We haven't had any showers. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is www.pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. That's www.prn.live. That's L-I-V-E, prn.live. Streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. I'm eagerly looking forward to returning into the studio for live calls from you, the listening audience. In the meantime, you can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. The 46th Annual Trenton Computer Festival, also known as TCF 2022, was held Saturday, March 19th. It was a free virtual online event on tcf-nj.org. The theme of the festival was Using Technology to Disrupt Environmental Change. There were over 50 talks on 10 concurrent tracks. And if you miss some of the talks because they were concurrent, all the sessions were recorded. They are now available and free for download at tcf-nj.org and the main page has hyperlinks that will direct you to the portal site. On Easter Sunday, the San Francisco police were faced with an interesting situation when they stopped a self-driving car that was operating without headlights. The police approached a vehicle that had promptly pulled over according to its programming to find no one inside. This illustrates an interesting point in technology concerning and how the police should deal with autonomous vehicles if they should find a reason to stop one. Autonomous vehicles are programmed to pull over for emergency vehicles. But how do the police deal with any violations if no one is inside? In this situation, the police contacted Cruz, the company that operated this autonomous vehicle, and no citations were issued for the headlight outage. Cruz has instructed law enforcement to call a number to their escalation team if a similar situation arises in the future because they can attempt to correct issues remotely. It's interesting to see such a situation like this arise that is so deeply rooted in technological innovation. The scope of technology like this is currently and will continue to raise legal and regulatory issues that must be addressed accordingly. Technology has already brought about so much change and adaptations will continue to be necessary as new technologies are allowed to become accepted and prominent. The self-driving car was from General Motors. It is GM's next-generation hands-free driver-assist technology. GM reveals UltraCruise hands-free system that covers 95% of driving scenarios. Cruise has been developing autonomous driving technology. This is such an interesting situation. 
Self-driving cars are soon to be a normal occurrence. With this new innovation, there is much to consider. This particular incident is going to be the basis of how people are going to deal with similar situations. What happens when there is a car accident involving a self-driving car? Self-driving cars may be a common factor in a lot of future accidents. There are many things to consider when it comes to this topic. Situations like these are likely to grow more prevalent now that both Cruise, a GM offshoot, and Waymo, Google Parents' Alphabet self-driving business, are running autonomous cars on California public roads with no one in the driver's seat. However, as the situation becomes more common, regulations setting the law on self-driving cars is essential for people's safety. If there are no specific laws on this, it will extend huge problems when the accident happens. Who's responsible for an accident? The self-driving car will become common in the future, but safety comes first. Law and rules will be necessary for this technology. Given that there is nobody physically present to be held accountable, would it be fair for the company to still receive any ticket or punishment as an ordinary driver would have? With the advancement of artificial intelligence, technology has changed forever. Although this kind of technology is long way down the road, artificial intelligence is already becoming very present in today's society. Self-driving cars will continue to improve, resulting in fewer problems and challenges. But this is unlikely to be the last time that self-driving cars are in the news. Embracing our future entails increasing one's awareness and knowledge of the subject. Law enforcement agencies need to prepare for autonomous vehicles to become commonplace on public roadways and embrace the technology in order to better serve their communities. In this instance, it was a commercial company car, so the police officer was easily able to contact the company. But what if this was a regular person's car? They would have to just take down the license number and go on from there. The advancement of technology is going to continue and there are going to be some issues and adjustments that need to be addressed. The self-driving car will continue to be improved, and fewer problems and issues will come from them. However, this is most likely will not be the last time where self-driving cars are in the news having a minor issue. This is a really interesting situation when police pulled over a car, but there's no one inside. But the car was driven. There will be new laws and regulations about self-driving cars before it actually comes to the market. Is Windows 11 ready for prime time? Let's take a look. Microsoft released a pre-release of Windows 11 in June of 2021. And for four months it went through public, and I use the word public, beta testing, Windows 11 was officially released October the 5th of last year. Ever since Windows 10 was launched back in 2015, there has been no major update. However, Microsoft expects Windows 11 to be a game changer from a new interface to a wide range of new features. The pre-release of Windows 11 was back in June of last year, and it went through a shakedown phase for four months. Before upgrading to Windows 11, from Windows 10, you'll probably first want to know how Windows 11 compares to Windows 10. There are plenty of differences between Windows 11 and Windows 10, especially from a visual perspective. 
you will find changes under the hood. One of the main differences between Windows 11 and Windows 10 is improved overall performance. When you make the switch, you will notice performance tweaks and new features. The new operating system offers performance improvements unlike ever before. If you're planning on an upgrade, however, you may need to first upgrade your memory to at least 8 gigabytes. Expect speedier web browsing, quicker wake-ups from sleep, and faster logins. And for Windows updates, they will be more minor. Besides, Windows 11 users will also find the operating system to provide some efficiency. Another notable difference between Windows 11 and Windows 10 is the enhanced interface. Windows 11 offers a brand new interface that resembles Mac OS. The interface uses pastel shades and rounded corners to provide a clean design. The interface also moves the iconic start menu towards the center along with the taskbar. However, you have the option to move the start menu wherever you want, similar to Windows 10. The entire look has been revamped. This means that Windows 11 has an entirely different interface from Windows 10. Each user interface element would feature rounded corners. Windows 11 will also provide many more themes. If you are someone who likes to change the theme of your computer from time to time, you will find the new operating system to be the perfect option. There are many other options, such as new default themes for both light and dark mode, along with four additional themes. There are new contrast themes for the visual impaired, like light sensitivity, which is included. However, there is a new theme engine which allows users to create a new theme with ease and complements the centered taskbar. The biggest difference between Windows 11 and Windows 10 is the start menu and taskbar. The change will make the operating system appear similar to Chrome OS or Mac OS. Microsoft has opted for a more simplistic route. You will see a list of apps and the most used documents at the bottom. Some notable taskbar changes are where the icons, where it's icons only and no more labels. Task icons, and they'll have notification badges to keep you notified. It'll show desktop icons, and it has been replaced with a tiny line. Notification area, it has been hidden in an overflow area. Scroll through the list and pin the apps of your choice. Windows 11 does not support live tiles unlike Windows 10. The search box has been changed into an icon, and as for the Cortana functions, they have been removed in Windows 11. However, you should be able to download the Cortana app if you want to use it. Besides this, the Windows timeline has also been removed. Since Windows 11 offers a design rebirth, it has revamped the notification center and quick settings. Windows 11 requires users to hit the Windows key and N to open up their notifications. To access quick settings, one has to hold down the Windows key and hit the letter A. It will provide access to sound, music, Wi-Fi, brightness, sliders, and more. A touch of depth has been added to bring the 2D images to life. The notification boxes and menu panels have changed and have rounded corners to provide a softer look. There is also a dark mode, which allows you to change the color settings and opt for a more subdued colored scheme. 
Besides this, you can even get a full month calendar review in the Notification Center. File Explorer has been relocated to the bottom. Its functioning has improved and offers faster results. If you find the File Explorer on Windows 10 to be somewhat confusing to use, you will find the Windows 11 version to be more efficient. The thing about File Explorer is that it has undergone major overhaul for Windows 11. Users will find it to be a lot more efficient and much faster than Windows 10. The layout has been optimized to provide quick recommendations. Besides, one can easily jump in and out of apps with ease. One of the most important differences between Windows 11 and Windows 10 is multitasking. If you are looking for the ultimate system for multitasking, you will find Windows 11 to be a clear winner. It lets you set up virtual desks and the option to toggle between multiple desktops for gaming, school, work, and personal use. Snap Layouts offers a flyout display that's the window key plus Z shortcut that you can move your mouse over to access a desired window and move a window for future use. It saves the windows so that you can access them later using Snap Groups. The new operating system offers Snap Layouts that contain collections of apps that you can use at the same time. It allows for easy and quick task switching. Thus, you can get on with more work with Windows 11. The operating system has updated the Snap function to take things to the next level. Take advantage of the grid-based layout options to use the apps that you want. The layouts fit perfectly with the screen and allows you to focus on your work. You also get to use Snap Groups with jumping from one task to the next. Although widgets have been around for quite some time now, they are finally getting the attention they deserve with Windows 11. You should be able to access widgets from the taskbar, or the shortcut, the Windows key plus W to swipe from the left. In fact, you get to personalize them as you please. By using Windows 11 widgets, you get to utilize a collection of live feeds. They offer updates and recommendations to ensure that everything is automatically personalized to suit your requirements. The widgets are powered by artificial intelligence and curate everything based on your interest and location. Are you a gamer? Windows 11 offers plenty of gaming improvements. In fact, you will get to access features that were previously only found in Xbox consoles, such as direct storage and auto high dynamic range for improving your gaming experience. The main purpose of the upgrade is to integrate Xbox consoles and PCs. They will benefit from a better gaming experience with Windows 11 in comparison to Windows 10. The update offers better high frame rate gaming. Besides this, you will also notice high dynamic range improvements without the need to change the graphics card settings. Microsoft understands the importance of Android apps in the world of today. Hence, it has developed Windows 11 to provide Android app support to users. Android apps can finally be downloaded directly from the new Microsoft Store. Microsoft achieves this by cooperating with the Amazon App Store. If you are a Windows 10 user, you will know that it can be difficult to download Android apps on your computer. However, that will no longer be the case for Windows 11 as it will make it super easy for users to download and run their favorite Android apps. But again, this is from the Amazon App Store. Windows 11 will take your input experience to the next level. 
Microsoft has improved how you input using your device. Tablet users will get to unleash the power of touch. Besides this, there are many new icons and gestures that allows one to test different input capabilities. The new icons are offered by the new file explorer, as mentioned. As for gestures, there's a breakdown of what you can expect. When you upgrade to Windows 11, you will notice that the operating system has added haptics to the digital pen. You will be able to open the pen menu to enable your digital pen by clicking on the pen icon from the taskbar. This means that you will feel and hear vibrations. In addition to this, the system also introduces voice commands and typing. Finally, Windows 11 also offers Facelift for Microsoft Team. The all-in-one collaboration app helps keep your team organized. It will be directly integrated with the taskbar unlike Windows 10. Thus, users will have an easier time accessing the app. A final thought. Windows 11 is now ready for prime time, but it doesn't answer the question that every PC user should ask first. Why do I need this upgrade? The new operating system repurposes some of Microsoft's canceled Windows 10X code but lacks the unified vision that 10X promised. Aesthetically, Windows 11 sacrifices productivity for personality, but without cohesion. A new start menu seems designed for enterprises. A hyperactive widgets app pushes celebrity gossip. Teams chat asks you to reorganize your social circles around Microsoft. Yes, you will find things within Windows 11 worth applauding. The initial installation experience, a redesigned settings menu, tips and some improved Windows apps, and under-the-hood performance improvements will collaborate with gaming enhancements like direct storage and auto high dynamic range. Eventually for now. However, most users will probably want to forego the update for Windows 10 at the present time. Windows 11 is a free upgrade if you have a qualified Windows 10 system. Microsoft says it will take until mid-2022 for the update to be made available to all eligible computers. From most reports, it seems that more than half of the Windows 10 systems do not qualify for Windows 11 because of TPM 2.0. Windows 11 is decidedly a mixed bag of improved features and unnecessary changes. Windows 11 will undoubtedly improve over time. It's an upgrade that many users may want to forego for now. But if you have the time, just remember first, do a complete backup of Windows 10 before you do an upgrade to Windows 11. The electric vehicle or EV is not zero emission. Of course, you will say it's zero emission because it uses a battery. But what is a battery? It is an energy storage system. The battery itself does not make electricity. They store electricity produced elsewhere, primarily from coal, uranium, natural gas-powered plants, or diesel fuel generators. So to say an EV is a zero-emission vehicle is not at all valid. Also, since 40% of the electricity generated in the United States is from coal-fired plants, it follows that 40% of the EVs on the road are coal-powered. Do the math. Einstein's formula, E equals mc squared, tells us it takes the same amount of energy 
to move a 5,000-pound gasoline-driven automobile a mile as it does an electric one. The only question again is what produces the power? It does not come from the battery. The battery is only the storage device, like a gas tank in a car. There are two orders of batteries, rechargeable and single-use. The most common single-use batteries are A, AA, AAA, C, D, and the 9-volt, and lantern types. Those dry cell species use zinc, manganese, lithium, silver oxide, or zinc and carbon to store electricity chemically. Please note that they all contain toxic heavy metals. Rechargeable batteries only differ in their internal materials, usually lithium ion, nickel metal oxide, and nickel cadmium. The United States uses 3 billion of these two battery types a year, and most are not recycled. They end up in landfills. California is the only state which requires all batteries to be recycled. If you throw your small used batteries in the trash, here is what happens to them. All batteries are self-discharging. That means even when not in use, they leak tiny amounts of energy. You have likely ruined a flashlight or two from an old ruptured battery. When a battery runs down and can no longer power a toy or light, you think of it as a dead battery. Well, it's not. It continues to leak small amounts of electricity. As the chemicals inside it runs out, pressure builds inside the battery's metal casing, and eventually it cracks. The metals left inside then ooze out. The ooze in your room flashlight is toxic. So is the ooze that will inevitably leak from every battery in a landfill. All batteries eventually rupture. It just takes rechargeable batteries longer to end up in the landfill. In addition to dry cell batteries, there are also wet cell batteries used in automobiles, boats, and motorcycles. The good thing about those is 90% of them are recycled. Unfortunately, we do not yet know how to recycle single-use ones properly. But that's not half of it. For those of you excited about electric cars and a green revolution, take a closer look at batteries and also windmills and solar panels. These three technologies share what we call environmentally destructive embedded cost. Everything manufactured has two costs associated with it, embedded cost and operating cost. Consider the embedded cost, such as using a can of baked beans as an example. The baked beans are on sale, so you head out to the grocery store. They're on the shelf for, let's say, $2 a can, and you head to the checkout, and you start to think about the embedded cost in the can of beans. The first cost is the diesel fuel the farmer used to plow the field, till the ground, harvest the beans, and transport them to the food processor. Not only is his diesel fuel an embedded cost, so are the costs to build the tractors, combines, and trucks. In addition, the farmer might use a nitrogen fertilizer made from natural gas. Next is the energy cost of cooking the beans heating the building, transporting the workers, paying for the vast amounts of electricity used to run the plants. The steel can holding the beans is also an embedded cost. Making the steel can require mining taconite, also shipping it by boat, extracting the iron, placing it in a coal-fired blast furnace, and adding carbon. 
Then it's back on another truck to take the beans to the grocery store. Finally, in the cost of the gasoline for your car, a typical EV battery weighs 1,000 pounds, about the size of a travel trunk. It contains 25 pounds of lithium, 60 pounds of nickel, 44 pounds of manganese, 30 pounds of cobalt, 200 pounds of copper, and 400 pounds of aluminum, steel, and plastic. Inside are over 6,000 individual lithium-ion cells. It should concern you that all those toxic components come from mining. For instance, to manufacture each EV auto battery, you must process 25,000 pounds of brine for the lithium, 30,000 pounds of ore for the cobalt, 5,000 pounds of ore for the nickel, and 25,000 pounds of ore for copper. All told, you dig up 500,000 pounds of the Earth's crust for just one battery. 68% of the world's cobalt a significant part of a battery comes from the Congo. Their mines have no pollution controls, and they employ children who are slave labor who die from handling this toxic material. Should we factor in these diseased kids as part of the cost of driving an electric car? California is building the largest battery in the world near San Francisco, and they intend to power it from solar panels and windmills. They claim this is the ultimate in being green. But it is not. This construction project is creating an environmental disaster. The main problem with solar arrays is the chemicals needed to process silicate into the silicon used in the panels. To make sure silicon requires processing it with hydrochloric acid, sulfuric acid, nitric acid, hydrogen fluoride, trichloroethane, and acetone. In addition, they need gallium arsenide, copper indium, gallium diesellinide, and cadmium telluride, which also are highly toxic. Silicon dust is a hazard to the workers, and the panels cannot be recycled. Windmills are the ultimate in embedded cost and environmental destruction. Each weighs 1,688 tons, the equivalent of 23 homes, and contains 1,300 tons of concrete, 295 tons of steel, 48 tons of iron, 24 tons of fiberglass, and the hard-to-extract rare earth neodymium, praseodium, and disoprosium. Each blade weighs 81,000 pounds and will last 15 to 20 years, at which time it must be replaced. We cannot recycle used blades. Sadly, both solar arrays and windmills kill birds, bats, sea life, and migratory insects. There may be a place for these technologies, but you must look beyond the myth of zero emissions. EVs, or the electric vehicle, and windmills will be abandoned once the embedded environmental costs of making and replacing them become apparent. Going green may sound like the utopian ideal and are easily, well, they're, they're catchy buzzwords. But when you look at the hidden and embedded costs realistically with an open mind, you can see that going green is more destructive to the Earth's environment than meets the eye for sure. Just remember, the battery does not make electricity. They just store electricity produced elsewhere.
Presenting Benjamin Rockwell with his IT Pro Series. Addressing more rapid-fire complaints about IT. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to talk about business. It's time to discuss the workplace and IT. And I have some more rapid-fire complaints about IT departments and some of my thoughts on them. One of them, arrogance of the IT department. I will tell you, I've seen this time and time again. I see a lot of people complaining about the arrogance. I have also seen the arrogance. I have seen a lot of people who were very, very just like, what are you doing? These people are not here to do your bidding. You're here to do their bidding. You're here to help them. I have a different philosophy. I have a different approach, and maybe that's what has led me to a lot of personal success in the work environment. I like the idea of keeping people, uh, the customer service aspect. I, I like them happy. And yes, there are going to be times where I'm going to be the bearer of bad news, and I'm going to try and break it as nicely as I can. And sometimes I do forget, and I say, oh, hey, you can't do this. And I forget, hey, um... There's a reason why we can't do this and, and all of that. But there's, there is a certain level of arrogance. And part of this comes from I know more about computers than you do. And that's because I am socially awkward and I, you know, I'm only thinking about myself and not others. In my world, I, I've always tried to do my best to think more about others, to think more of others, to put myself into the same position that so many other people uh, are going through right now or remember when I was in their position. So there's a lot of that. There's a lot of balance there. And one of the things if you're dealing with somebody who's arrogant, uh, uh, you know, go for this. Please put yourself in my shoes. I'm struggling with this problem can you help me and appeal to their their side of being able to help you versus being able to denigrate you another rapid fire complaint about IT departments is the restricted web access i can't go to this website and i want to go to this website that website is a time waster or it's a bandwidth waster uh, you know when we started to shift uh, over to uh, over to this whole idea of work from home, we we started going through COVID, and one of the sites that they blocked, or is an, just as an example, was YouTube. Why did they block YouTube? Because the path for people to watch YouTube. In the office, originally you would sit at your desk. The information would come in from YouTube, very high bandwidth, very high volume. Coming in, it would go through the pipeline and it would go to your desk. And that was it. But now, when we're in this work from home situation, it has to come in through the firewall it gets processed. It then has to go in through the network, through the bandwidth. Then it has to be sent over to your home. So we're doubling the amount of bandwidth that the office has to deal with. But there's something more, too. 
And that is because it has to be encrypted. The firewalls have to be upgraded. So, yes, they're going to lock down unessential websites. They're going to lock us out of certain things, certain places that we might want to go. And then, of course, there's always the person who spoils it for a lot of people. And I remember a previous company I worked for where there was a guy who we we had to lock down the company to prevent a certain amount of, we'll just say, really inappropriate web activities. And we locked down the company more and then more, and then we realized, okay, we're hurting ourselves. Let's just lock him down. So, yeah, there's going to be restricted web access, and it's the company wanting you to be working on company items, not on personal items. The last item I'm going to cover here today is the BYOD, Bring Your Own Device Lockout. Now, I'm not sure if this is a big issue anymore, but it it is... Rise up in a number of different areas, and um, you know, over the years, yes, we have locked out personal devices. We have said no more, but we've slowly allowed them back in. We've slowly allowed things to change and adapt to the needs of the company. For instance, we used to lock out personal cell phones. I I remember that I had to carry my own iPhone, as well as a company iPhone. And it was sometimes confusing because they both were very similar. Now, as time went on, well, now I can get my personal information. I, As a matter of fact, I have on my own iPhone, I have many programs that are from the office. And they've shifted because now they're supporting the programs not my iPhone. And that was a struggle we had before. A matter of, oh, we're going to have to support your iPhone if we're also supporting this app. No, they separated those. So, yes, my two-factor authentication through my through my iPhone. My uh, communicating the instant messaging through my iPhone. I can get my email on my iPhone. I can do a number of different things on my, yes. Well, I, I should say smartphone. I just happen to have an iPhone, but uh, it could easily be an Android phone. It doesn't matter, but you should ask. You should see if there is a way to convert from a company-carried tech device to a personal one, especially if you have to carry both. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Mobile phone radiation and health. Since cell phones first came onto the market in 1983, they have gone from clunky devices to today's sleek, multifunction smartphones. Although cell phones are now used by nearly all Americans, there are concerns that long-term use may pose health risks from the radiation they emit. The antennas contained in mobile phones emit radio frequency, otherwise known as RF radiation. The parts of the head or body nearest to the antenna can absorb this energy. Since the 1990s, scientists have researched whether the now ubiquitous radiation associated with mobile phone antennas or cell phone towers is affecting human health. Mobile phone networks use various bands of RF radiation, some of which overlap with the microwave range. 
Other digital wireless systems, such as data communication networks, produce similar radiation. We do have several government agencies that have published their guidance as to whether cell phone RF poses a health issue. Cell phones, cell towers, and other wireless devices are regulated by most governments. From the Food and Drug Administration, which is the FDA, they publish the following. Some people are concerned that radiofrequency energy from cell phones will cause cancer or other serious health hazards. Based on the evaluation of the currently available information, note that I said it's based on available information, the FDA believes that the weight of scientific evidence has not linked exposure to radiofrequency energy from cell phone use with any health problems at or below the radiofrequency exposure limits set by the FCC. From the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which is the CDC, they published the following. Most of us depend on cell phones every day. Some people wonder if cell phones can cause health problems. Here's what you should know about cell phones and your health. Can using a cell phone cause cancer? There is no scientific evidence that provides a definitive answer to that question. Some organizations recommend caution in cell phone use. More research is needed before we know if using cell phones causes health effects. And from the Federal Communications Commission, which is the FCC, they published the following. In rules published, the FCC responded to guidelines published by the Government Accounting Office asking that it review its policies on RF testing. The core element of FCC hardware certification that helps ensure devices don't emit too much radiation and are generally safe to use. The FCC isn't changing the amount of radiation permitted by SAR testing. The SAR is the specific absorption rate. It is an international standard that was set up for measuring radiation emissions. The procedure that measures how much radiation is actually absorbed by the human body. But it is making a key change. The outer ear is now identified as an extremity, which means it can absorb considerably more radiation without running afoul of FCC guidelines. The general public acceptance use of the cell phone began with the introduction of the iPhone in January of 2007. Issues have been raised whether there may be a health issue with the use of the cell phone. The government agencies, the FCC, the FDA, and the CDC, have concluded there is no scientific evidence that provides a definitive answer to that question. You would have expected that there would be testing to have come up to with these conclusions. Our government, however, stopped funding research on the health effects of radio frequency radiation back in the 1990s there has been no formal study. Should people stop using cell phones? At this time, we do not have the science to link health problems to cell phone use. Now, we've been told, follow the science. Follow the science. Well, our governmental agencies have given us guidelines based on other studies that they refer to. Well, the question is, how much radiation is emitted by today's popular smartphones. Smartphones have become an integral part of our everyday lives. From work and school to daily tasks, these handheld devices have brought 
everything into the palm of our hands. Most people spend five to six hours on their phones each day, and given that our phones emit a tiny amount of radiation, we're exposing ourselves to radiation for hours each day. But different phones emit different amounts of radiation. With the help of data collected by the German Federal Office of Radiation Protection, we now have the radiation emissions of some popular smartphones on the market today. Smartphones and other mobile devices emit tiny amounts of radio frequency RF radiation. Humans can absorb this radiation when a smartphone is being used or is lying dormant anywhere near the bodies. The parameter used to measure phone radiation emission is, as I had mentioned, the specific absorption rate, the SAR. It is a unit of measurement that represents the quantity of electromagnetic energy absorbed by the body when using a mobile device. In this study by the German Federal Office of Radiation Protection, they came up with the following information. What they did was they tested 10 popular models and they measured the absorption rates at the air level instead of the body. The Council of the European Union has set radiation standards for cell phones at 2.0 watts per kilogram. Measure over the 10 grams of tissue that is absorbing the most signal. The SAR values are calculated at the ear, speaking on the phone, and at the body kept in your pocket for the purposes of the test. And they came up with the following calculations. When it's measured at the ear level, the 10 models that they tested were all under 2.0, which meant that they were within regulation. But the range of a value was quite a wide range. At the high level was the Motorola Edge that came in at 1.79, ranging downwards to the Huawei Mate 20 Pro, which only measured 0.4. Well, let's go through this very quickly. The Motorola Edge was 1.79. The ZTE Axon was 1.26. The Oppo X3 Pro was 1.17. The Google Pixel 6 was 1.0, which is at the halfway mark. The iPhone 13 Pro was 0.99. The iPhone 12 was 0.98. The Motorola Edge 20 Pro was 0.93. The Motorola Galaxy S21 Ultra was 0.71. The Google Pixel 5a was 0.47. And the Huawei Mate 20 Pro was 0.40. They also ran measurements of what the radiation was at the body level. The smartphone levels of radiation emissions measured at the body level were measured for the following models. The Motorola Edge was at 1.79. ZTE Axon 11 5G was 0.59. The OnePlus 6T was 0.55. The Sony Xperia AX2 Plus was 1.41. The Google Pixel 3XL and the 3AXL was 1.39. The Google Pixel 4A was 1.37. The Oppo Reno 5G was 1.36. The Sony Xperia XZ1 was 1.36. OnePlus 6 was 1.33. The Google Pixel 3 was 1.33. The Huawei Y7 was 0.3. The Sony Xperia 5 II was 0.28. The LG G8X ThinQ was 0.27. The Motorola Razr 5G was 0.27. 
the Galaxy S10 5G was 0.26, the Galaxy M20 was 0.25, the LG G7 ThinQ was 0.24, the Galaxy A80 was 0.22, the Galaxy Note 10 Plus was 0.19, and finally, the Motorola ZTE Blade V10 was 0.13, which is very low. The units tested was that the Motorola Edge was a high of 1.79, ranging all the way down to the Motorola ZTE Blade V10, which is 0.13. That's quite a range. The data from the tested phones are all within the radiation standards of 2.0 watts per kilogram set by the Council of the European Union. But in the real world, there is RF generated from other devices at the same time. Based on the German study, there is no conclusive information that can be drawn by factors of model of the unit, nor manufacturer, nor date of product release. Each model unit should be accompanied by an SAR rating. Considering that there are other devices generating RF, I would recommend a unit that is rated at least 25% below the international set radiation standard of 2.0 watts per kilogram. There is currently no significant research proving the harmful effects of phone radiation. Despite this, people who are on their cell phones for extended periods can at least quantify their radiation exposure and make the choice of what model they use, which brand best serves their needs based on usage. But we should have an SRA rating on all sold cell phone models. Presenting Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston with the technology chatter, Klein Screwdriver Tools. Marty Winston joins me now, and Marty, you're you're a few weeks older than I am, and uh, <laughs> and I know that there were a number of shows, uh, TV shows. Uh, back before I was old enough to watch television, that that we, we I hear these references to every once in a while about uh, kind of what we saw, uh, what we thought tech would be like. We saw some glimpse at like spy tech and stuff like that. Oh, I, yeah. I, I, one of the shows uh, it, that I never really saw, Man from Uncle. Oh, an NBC giant. Uh, the, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, the the two two spies, Napoleon Solo and his ally, a Russian, Ilya Kuryakin. Okay. Uh, and they were out uh, in the spirit of James Bond, who had just been a success in the movies, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. thwarting uh, world uh, destruction plans and and kind of kind of like some guys we need right now. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. And and, and also uh, doing their best to find a date for the night. Uh, so you know. That's, <laughs> <laughs> eight o'clock in the eight o'clock in the evening in prime time, uh, which is still access time for the kids. You can bet that they weren't always that successful, mm-hmm. but there were mm-hmm. always smiles and have a drink uh, at times. Uh, anyway, uh, when they communicated, this was decades before the Star Trek communicator. Mm-hmm. They had a little pocket gizmo that looked like a straight cylinder pen kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you you would hear this kind of sound out of it. And that meant their boss, Mr. Waverly was calling and they had to slide a piece of the pen up and slip it back down. And that turned it into a two way communicator. And somehow it made for sound so clear, you'd swear he was just in the next studio over. 
So. Okay, all right. <laughs> we know that doesn't work quite like that these days, but yeah, and it, and even today, it always came, the call from Waverly always came at the most excruciating moment when the least uh, note that they were present was life endangering. So, okay, <laughs> you know, the boss with the sense of timing. Anyway, that came to mind when Klein Tools sent their three-in-one impact flip socket set uh, uh, okay now, all right interesting uh okay go on you're seeing two shanks here yeah uh, everybody who's looking on on their radio look closely <laughs> one of them is three inches long the other is five inches long mm -hmm. and each one has a piece at the end that flips like the man from uncle's pocket communicator to be a quarter inch or mm -hmm. a five sixteenth mm -hmm. inch mm -hmm. socket so you're out in the field what do you carry with you? You never have everything. You always get one thing wrong, right? Uh, <laughs> if I'm lucky. <laughs> if you're lucky. This fits into anything with a hex drive on it. Mm -hmm, right. Standard little uh, groove so you slide it in the drill or slide it in the handle or whatever you have. This gives you two socket drivers for one in two different lengths. It's on all on a tiny card. You could slip this in the box and it take less room than three ballpoints. Sure, it, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's a tiny, cool little thing, but it is only one of the ways yeah. in which they make a single tool cover multiple roles, kind of like those spies, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. What are you today? A tennis pro. No, you can't do that. That was on iSpy. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, is their 14-in-1. Everybody look. Their 14-in-1 adjustable screwdriver. Okay. All right. Yeah. It has a whole bunch of little hex sockets built into the handle on kind of an elevator slide mechanism. Mm -hmm, if you don't mm -hmm. like the first row, you slide it out more. There's a second row. And it's got star heads and hex heads and Phillips and cross and, and some bizarre Schrader heads and, and some other stuff on a shank that has an adjustable span. You don't you put it a little bit way in, you put it all the way in. And you have as short or long a screwdriver as the job requires. And by the way, in both this and that uh, flip socket set, the uh, bit holder is magnetized. Okay, so, nice, nice, yeah. Fumble fingers go away. Uh, so so I, I'm digging on this one because, you know, okay, so over the course of my years in tech, uh, I've – I've come across like cheap versions of this <laughs> oh, yeah, and I've indeed. never found a really good, you know, a high end brand. It's always been this, this weird, you know, they're looking to kind of add some reason for us to buy, but Klein tools coming up with a, a multi bit, uh, this and this, this looks really good too. It is. It's a sweet. Oh yeah. I how, how many things do you keep in your glove box? Uh, I may have the only glove box that has gloves in it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I keep tech in there. I, I keep, uh, I, I do keep gloves in there, but, uh, but yeah, it, yeah, it's mostly tech. <laughs> yeah. Charging cords and uh, I've got a spare battery in there. Yeah. We, we've we've gone through the you know TV spies who who drive success against uh, tyrants to uh, little drivers that have the nuts and bolts of uh, making making your work work. Sure, yeah.
This is um, I, I'm, I am, uh, I'm always impressed with client tools. You, you've come up with a lot of these over, uh, over the past uh, what a year or so. You, six, six you, seven years of that, that that we've had them on occasionally. Oh uh, yeah. Over, over the last year, it's been like a fountain of clever. Yeah, it, it's. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm really thinking that Klein is is starting to fill in a gap left by. We'll just say a, a company that um, used to be really big in mail order catalogs that, uh, <laughs> uh, that, <laughs> that, that their their tools category got sold off and yeah and went downhill from there. So K L E I N, yeah, yeah. We're just tooling around. Thank you, Ben, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer Club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri-State region. Since most club meetings are online, you are most welcome to attend any of the online meetings. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Brookdale Computer Users Group meets Thursday, April the 28th. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. Topic of presentation is AI and our human future. It's a virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is bcug.com. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, May the 6th. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. The Westchester PC Users Group. We'll have a presentation, Podcasting with Robert Miller. Thursday, May the 5th, meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is wpcug.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, May the 6th, meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, May the 10th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. And they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. And to confirm, call 347-278-7320. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN.Live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on PRN.Live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again. Same time, same station next week.